You are listening to the Enormo Cast. La Sportiva presents Storytime. There once was a little boy named Tommy Caldwell. One day, little Tommy decided he wanted to climb a really big wall, but he couldn't find any shoes to climb the big wall in. So he decided to build his own out of scotch tape, fluffernutter, and a used pair of hand jammies left behind by a couple of euros in Camp 4. When those didn't work, Tommy called the adults at Sportiva and asked them for help. Sportiva came up with the TC Pro, named after little Tommy himself. A shoe so good at big wall climbing that little TC grew up to climb the hardest, biggest big walls in the world in his TC Pros. Then he talked his best friend, teeny tiny Alex H, into trying them, and Alex, well, he became a pretty good climber too. So if you want to be like TC or Tiny A, go to Sportiva.com or your favorite mountain shop and check out a pair of TC Pros. And maybe someday you'll grow up to the end. Are you stuck in the partner zone where that person you climb with is blithely unaware of your electric longing that's telegraphing through that stiff gym rope? Does she think of you as just another dude she schools in the bouldering cave? Does he tell his friends you're just like one of the guys? Well, break out of the partner zone and let that person know that your rock is in a hard place with a special gift from PeterWGilroy.com. Because if you thought making sure her chalk bag was always full or buying him a set of cams for his half birthday would bring out the passion, you're wrong. Do it the right way and go to PeterWGilroy.com for rock-inspired jewelry and accessories that say, to me, you're more than just a solid filet, baby. And of course, remember to enter Enormo at checkout for a discount. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. Like I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormcast. This is your host, Chris Galus. It is about 10.30, April 1st, 2018, and this is episode 148 of the Enormcast, a conversation with Hugh Herr. So we have a lot to talk about before we get to the interview. I had uh, a little bit of a limited window with Mr. Herr, and so I didn't want to get too into recounting his accident back in 1982, even though it is a very important part of the interview and a of his life then and now. Um, but, you know, just going through the details, I thought maybe we could take care of that here in the intro and not have him recount that as he's done, you know, endless times over the last few decades. So before we get to the interview, I think it's important that we talk a little bit about some of the details of what happened to Hugh back in 82 on Mount Washington. In my generation of climbers, we all kind of knew about this, I think. It's definitely in the lore but maybe has become a little bit of old history that some people don't know about. So maybe you know some of the details. I'm just going to do a little book report about it now to get you guys sort of positioned for the rest of the interview. But what basically happened is Hugh and his partner, Jeff Batzer, were going climbing on Mount Washington in Huntington Ravine, going up to do some ice climbing in January, way back in 1982. Both of them experienced climbers, both of them uh, very experienced ice climbers, but as they finished the route and headed to the summit, they were caught in a severe storm, a whiteout, um, very high winds, hurricane winds, as they call them. But uh, Mount Washington can have notoriously horrible weather. And in fact, Huntington Ravine has been the site of many fatalities over the years. These guys both survived, but uh, on the way down, they got super lost and 
basically ended up descending kind of the wrong side of the mountain into what Hugh Herr called in one interview the wilderness side of the mountain. And nobody knew where they were. They didn't know where they were. And they basically ended up in a snow cave or some semblance of a snow cave for three nights. And severely cold weather, negative 20, no bivy gear, and just hugging each other and hoping for rescue. And eventually, actually, in their own words, giving up on that. And they, they basically stopped hugging each other, thinking that perhaps dying quicker would be much, much better. Um, but finally, a woman who's affiliated with the rescue team, not out as, as a rescuer, but knew what was going on, found some tracks and ended up finding the two men three days later. And uh, they were rescued before they died. But the important part of this story, or, or, or as Hugh talks about it when we get into the interview, one of the main and most significant parts of this story is that two of the rescuers during the search were caught in an avalanche, and one, Albert Dow, was killed in that avalanche. And as we'll find out, that played a huge part in what Hugh did with the rest of his life. Knowing that this man had died trying to save him it was a great burden on on Hugh Herr for many a decade and continues to motivate him to be uh, who he is today. So during their descent, Hugh had fallen through some ice and into a creek that they were following actually a couple times. And even with his partner giving him wool pants, uh, eventually Hugh's legs froze. And in fact, both men received severe frostbite. And in the aftermath, both men lost body parts. Jeff Batzer lost a foot as well as toes on his other foot and uh, some fingers off of his right hand, I believe it was his right hand. And then Hugh Herr lost both legs from the knee down. They had frozen by the time they were rescued. So that starts to catch us up to the interview. But what happened with Hugh is that he decided to keep climbing, and he began to tinker in his own garage and in machine shops with prosthetics that would help him climb. And in fact, pretty quickly after his amputations healed, he started climbing again using various prosthetics that he was designing himself. And the one wild thing is that he basically started to tailor a lot of these prosthetics that he was creating to the climbing that he needed to do. You know, making his feet edge better for certain climbs, using crack kind of designed feet for fitting in cracks. He put crampons on them for ice climbing. He made them longer so he could be taller. Um, He says he can be anywhere from about five feet to about eight feet tall. And he started using those to climb. And in fact, became in a lot of ways a better climber after his accident in terms of rock climbing. In the year following his accident, 1983, he establishes Vandals, one of the first 513s, one of the first on the East Coast, and uh, established that with Lynn Hill and Russ Clune. And then uh, went on to establish a route called Stage Fright, an RX route, 512 RX route at Cathedral Ledge. And also did a second ascent of a route called City Park out in Index that was 513C. Keeping in mind that in 1986, 513C was right at the top of the grades. So in the interview, as usual, we don't run down his resume. But I thought I'd hit that up here because uh, it's pretty astounding what he went on to do. And in his own mind... When people started to sort of accuse him and grumble about cheating because his you know, lower half of his body was lighter and he could customize his feet to do what he needed them to do on the rock, he actually thought that was great when people started accusing him of cheating and that he thought it meant that finally they'd accepted him uh, and accepted his disability. And um, once they started competing with him, he knew he was back. So now Hugh Herr is a professor at MIT and probably the most famous person that's ever been on the Enormacast, I think, just in terms of worldwide fame. He is one of the top engineers and researchers in this field in biomechatronics. Biomechatronics? Yeah, bionics, basically. So, yeah. Essentially, he loses his legs when he's 17, decides that he's going to be better than he was, and then he's gone on to basically change the world. So, that's what we're talking to today. And if you guys get interested in this guy, please just go Google him. There's so much to find out about this fascinating man, what he's done with his life, and the amount of suffering that he's alleviated when people are losing limbs, soldiers, athletes, anybody really. It's pretty amazing stuff. So go down that rabbit hole. You will not be disappointed. Uh, But start here with an interview on the Enormacast with Hugh Herr. (laughs) 
I don't know what's happening in your neck of the woods, but out here in the great American West, it's the start of desert crack season, which means two things. The bros are charging up their Bluetooth speakers, and people are wondering where the hell they're going to get enough cams. But Black Diamond has your back. On top of the heap are the Camelot ultralights. Cams so fleet that Elon Musk once shot one into space strapped to a bottle rocket. And then there's the venerable C4, the cam that still rules the creek. And legend has it, if you whisper Camelot, Camelot, Camelot into a mirror while holding a red C40 or forehead, the location of the easiest for you 12 minus will be revealed. But wherever your crack reveals itself, remember, BD has you covered with the sweetest cams known to man. Check them all out at blacktimeandequipment.com or your favorite local shop. I'm smiling because my, my identity is so has, has shifted so much from my climbing days. You know, I, I uh, joke on this about doing minimum research when I get into these situations with people, but I do, you know, I do end up looking at what I can find out. And it's interesting because the, your Wikipedia page, it does list climber first. My question, I guess, is, is a little bit about your evolution as a climber. What brought you into it? What consumed you about it and then a little bit about maybe we get to where it what it means to you now in terms of this you know, you've got these multiple identities great so I, I started climbing when I was six or seven years old in the foothills of Lancaster County near the Susquehanna River um, I, I got into it uh, my brothers and I saw a I think it was a television program of uh, showing someone climbing and we we th- we were enthralled and raced out and, and bought how-to manuals and <laughs> went to these uh, slimy, moss-covered crags uh, in Pennsylvania and went at it. And then it quickly progressed to the, the Schwellengunks every, every week. I was climbing uh, as often as I possibly could, given that I was uh, in middle school and high school. Yeah, I absolutely developed a, a passion. Um, Climbing is hard with a capital H, and I like to do hard things. I like to uh, be all consumed by by a passion, by a discipline, and to see um, on what boundary I can put myself upon in terms of performance. I was a strange youth, uh, <laughs> to say the least. I, uh, I studied Zen, and I st- studied meditation, uh, I was extremely disciplined. I, I didn't have very many friends. And we're talking like even, you know, teenage or younger. Uh, yeah, this yeah. was, I mean, I, again, I cl- started climbing when I was six. Yeah. Uh, when I was eight, I climbed Mount Temple in Alberta. It's an 11,000 some foot mountain. Uh, when I was 11, I started to do some some things in the rock world that were um, interesting. My sort of first first youthful ascent, if you will. Sure. I was just trying to position, like you said, you were a, an odd youth, and that would be kind of strange at an age like that to be looking into these disciplines. Yeah, sort of 13, yeah. 14, 15, <laughs> I, was, I was reading Zen and the Art mm-hmm. of books, um, archery and tennis and all kinds of stuff. Did you have someone that was like the gateway to that? Got you there, or was it something I you... I don't believe so. Your parents, right? <laughs> That's, a, that's, that's a right. My poor parents. So I would. I was a bit autistic, okay. and i I would sit. I would sit for hours and hours and hours alone um, in the in the basement of the family home, and I would just sit there and rock back and forth. And what was I thinking about? It was it was this elaborate fantasy world about the future. Is oh, I always live in the future, but it was like visions of. What, what would be possible in climbing and beyond climbing um, as I'd rock, rock there in this soothic rhythmic pattern. Uh, I was also reading uh, Carlos Castaneda, um, Tales of Power, The Separate Reality. I was also reading Tolkien. So I was in this realm of, of fantasy, life and death, uh, adventure type literature. I'll never forget that the day I, I, I free soloed Boogaboo Spire in British Columbia. 
again, I was steeped in this this literature of mysticism and Zen and meditation. And uh, I woke up early that day, and I I hiked up the whole way and scrambled up to the call at the base of the northeast ridge of the Bhagavad Spire. And I I thought I saw a shadow to my to my side, which was which was a sign that I, uh, a precursor of death um, from my readings. So okay. I, I decided to descend. So I went the whole way down to the hut. And I was sitting there twiddling my thumbs, and about noon I got terribly bored. And then I went up and did it. <laughs> yeah, the sun is, you know, no more shadows anyway, right? <laughs> right. So yes, a very, very strange youth. I ask this, when I, when I talk to a lot of people who, who start out climbing, very young um, and progress into a, a level as high as you did. That's really common today. I mean, the best climbers in the world are, are those people now. But in in that era, that's a you know you you were unusual in the sense of being that young. And then, and then also, I always like to ask about the interface with adults um, because a kid who wants to climb in those days. You know, you're, unless you've got your, your best bros that are progressing right with you, you always end up running around and climbing with, with adults, uh, That's right. especially at an yeah. early age. So what was there? Uh, you know, you said you didn't have a lot of friends as a kid. How, how are they, like, uh, perceiving what you were doing? Not just um, this literature and all these, these thoughts. Maybe you weren't sharing them. But also, I mean, you know, going and climbing uh, these things by yourself at such a young age, was that raising a lot of eyebrows? Were they accepting? Or um, was it easy to, to climb with, you know, older climbers? I mean, I don't know. How, how, how much older is Russ than you are? Russ Clint? Yeah. Um, substantially. Yeah. So, I mean, here you are partnered with these guys like Russ, you know. Right. But they're uh, used to weirdos, you know, in the right. climbing world. So That's right. Yeah. Yeah, when I said I didn't, I had few friends. Mm-hmm. I, I did have, uh, I really met few friends of my own age. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did have close friends uh, of folks that were much, much older than, than I was. Russ Clune being being an example. Um, I think Russ would, you know, sometimes he would he would say, "Hugh, you're so effing strange," <laughs> and he'd laugh. <laughs> yeah, he'd laugh. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I had a I had a wonderful childhood. I just I would not replace it with mm-hmm. any other person's childhood. It was just complete saturation of adventure mm. and joyous adventure. Yeah, and so then my other question in the ter- terms of that is always, what uh, were your sort of parents' attitudes towards, you know, again, the, the young age, disappearing was, and running around? Yeah, I was the baby. Okay. Uh, I am the baby. It's hard to imagine. I'm so old now. No, it never changes. So. <laughs> um, I have two brothers and two sisters. Okay. Um, when, you're, when you have five kids, you kind of give up in the last one. <laughs> So I, I had all this freedom from my parents because they were off working, and they—I don't think they had a clear sense of what what I was doing. In fact, I'm sure of that. Until later, of course. Right. You know, every weekend I would do anything possible to get to the gunks. Obviously, I wasn't able to drive. I wasn't 16 yet, um, so I would hitchhike. I would convince my older brother Tony to to drive. I would. You know, call everyone in the region to hop a ride. So, and I would, you know, during that period, I, I was, I was not, uh, as you would say, ambitious in the realm of academics. In okay. fact, I did everything possible that I could to get out of the classroom. And because of that, I, I studied vocational uh, school because that afforded me three hours midday to go climbing and tra- train. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's funny. It's um, I went I, I went to my five year high school reunion, and this was after I uh, was through MIT and was through Harvard, and mm-hmm. and people were like, "What happened to you?" It's that like you cannot be the same person that was sitting in the back row and. Um, performing poorly in academics in middle school. I, I taught high school for a while. It sounds to me, yeah, you were just a, a classic kid who had the aptitude, not the interest, or the, or just Absolutely. like, I yeah. Was, I was completely bored and did not mm-hmm. want to be in school. Right, yeah. And, it, and it, you know, a good teacher, 
can recognize that, but that there's not always a lot they can do about it. You know, I mean, the system is the system, and and uh, a good teacher can help somebody like you. Or, but sometimes, I mean, it just yeah, you're you're like beyond help in that sense of, you know, he's going to find his way one day, but it, it's not going to be here at you know twelve thirty in English class. So, right. yeah, there were glimmer. There was a glimmer of hope in <laughs> in eighth or ninth grade in algebra. Uh, you know, at the end of the course, there was a, a national exam that we all took to to rate my particular high school, that particular class, and so on. And and I guess I I got something out of the term because I scored the highest in the class. Right. And again, so I was sitting in the back back uh, back of the class, and I remember when the scores were announced, the entire class turned around and stared at me. Right. And the expression was, how the hell did you cheat? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. I'm sure, again, I'm sure some kids recognized, you know, what they were looking at. Um, but uh, let's skip ahead and just, can you tell me where climbing is in your, uh, in your life now? Yeah, so uh, on, on, on rare occasion, I do go climbing. Um, I enjoy going to the Italian Alps. Um, I love the culture and the food, and I love the limestone and the easy access to, to really remarkable, steep, um, somewhat dangerous uh, rocketeering. So, I mean, I try to get there every year, but it's, it's often every two years, to be honest. So climbing, you know, doesn't play a dominant role in a physical sense in my life today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I'm, I'm still a climber uh, philosophically, um, and I think uh, the climbing mentality uh, motivates a lot of my scientific work. Okay, and is that what you mean by philosophically? Yes. Like it's a, the challenge is reapplied in, in a sense to other places. Just and, you know the the climber that the extreme climber that balances technique, physicality, with the psychological dimensions of, of controlling fear mm-hmm. and risk-taking, but not um, trying to walk that fine line between acceptable risk and unacceptable risk. So scientifically, I also try to walk that line. And it's interesting in my head, when I'm thinking about scientific pro- projects, I actually, I, I visually see myself in my mind climbing and uh, kind of making progress from, from edge to edge and ledge to ledge mm-hmm. as an analogy. Right. That's exceptional. That's cool. Um, I was hoping that, you know, coming here today, I'm like, I don't really know what his relationship with climbing is anymore. But, uh, you know, as, as, as a lifer myself and, uh, you know, I, I find the same kind of it's always going to sort of be there and that that's cool to hear that. Um, so going back, um, I've been climbing since 1989 and, and I remember, you know, the first time I ever understood who you were, um, it was the images of you climbing with the prosthetics, you know, which were awesome and mind blowing. And, but then I started to look into what you'd done and what you have done and, and, uh, or what we're doing and included, you know, some really dangerous climbs. Um, that was my dangerous was my forte. Oh yeah. And that's, I, I could, I wanted to ask you that. And, um, you know, this kid, this kid with this incredible inner world or, 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 uh, and, and you said these heroic, heroic literature and life and death literature. And was that all, do you think that's, I mean, it's all connected to becoming this, this guy who was up there climbing on these, Absolutely. you know, touch and go, don't screw up sort of climbs. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was a mixture of how to achieve peak physical performance. So I, I w- in that regard, I would, I would had a whole meditation and visualization process where I would imagine what the sequence would be just by looking from the ground. And I would imagine the sequence of my body and the sequence of gear. Um, and I would meditate that on that and then, and then climb. And I'd off- <clears throat> often I would 
often be, be correct in my vision and mm-hmm. then you just flow and turn your mind off in this zen-like fashion and the the other piece of it was was control of fear that the meditation and, uh, and uh, was very helpful with as well but uh, yeah through that process of study I I fairly early was free soloing you know up to up to 511s and Climbing a lot of 512, 513 with the X rating. Yeah, because I def- definitely remember those that stuff being connected to your name. Um, when, like again, when I was first reading magazines and and checking it out. Um, how old were you when when the you guys got lost? And, and I was the, seventeen. You were seventeen only. Correct. Right, and so just recently. My, my birthday's in October, so I was in early 17. And so you'd still, I mean, at that point, you'd still been climbing for 10 years. And what, you know, where were you as a climber at that point before that? I mean, we're, we've been jumping around, so um, where were you as, as a climber when that happened? I was, I was peaking in the rock world and considered this child prodigy um, doing, uh, doing first descents in the Shrolangunks. Uh, I had recently done a trip to Yosemite Valley, um, where I'd done a separate reality and Astro Man and really fast times. And uh, we're talking like 81, right? Because the, the 81, 82 is when this all ha- happened. So, right. I mean, that's, yeah. So Astro Man is, you know, no mean feat at that point. Yeah, we did and it. For a 16 or 17 year old. We did it in three hours or something oh, right without on. falling. Who's we? Who were you climbing with um, Steve, in those days? Steve Grossman. I, uh-huh. I did Astro Man with. Right. Um, my brother was also with me on that trip. Yeah. And he was a good climber? Yeah. Yeah. Hans Her. Yeah. He's a good climber. Yeah. Cool. So that's where you were. And then, you know, to just reiterate, the lost in a storm on, on Mount Washington. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Three days. Three and a half. Three and a half days. Um, one rescuer was killed. Avalanche, I believe. Albert Dow. Yeah. And then, you know, due to frostbite, both of you lost. I mean, who, who are you with again? Jeff Batson. Je- yeah. Lost parts to, uh, to, the, to frostbite, and you lost both your legs from about the knee down. All right. Jeff lost, uh, had damage in his hands and his feet mm-hmm. and uh, had some fingers amputated as right. well. And so, you know, again, not to belabor all the details, we'll get them in in the beginning, but, you know, it's cliche sounding, but this is the, this is the, the thing that puts you where you are now in terms of a, a life-changing event. And at, at 18 years old or 17 years old, rather, I kind of started when you were talking earlier you know, one of the big things when I read about this and we in my generation, we all read about it and we all knew about it. And, uh, you know, the three days is an, an three and a half days is an intense thing to think about um, being lost and getting colder and colder and colder. But then I started thinking, I just heard about meditation and how this kid had had brought himself to this place. You know, putting yourself back there was was this a part of your survival when you were when you were out there? This this preparation that you had sort of inadvertently done for for a situation like this? I believe so, and, and also a, a a dance, a tease with death, in um, my free soloing and dangerous rock climbing. You know, doing routes with very little gear. Um, I, I certainly thought about falling to my death uh, often. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was in a uh, somewhat in a romantic sense that, as young men often um, think about death. On the mountain, I was like, okay, this is it. I've thought about this many, many times. Here it is. Um, and just, again, the, I, think, I think the notion of having faced dangerous situations many, many times, having faced death many, many times, one doesn't panic. Um, it's sort of like here, here I am again in a very difficult situation. In a situation like being in minus twenty degree temperatures and wind chills, uh, very very severe, and the snow depth on average was to the waist, sometimes to the chest. Um, panic is your worst enemy. 
If you're panic, if you panic, you will definitely die. So um, that was very helpful. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in the in the aftermath, uh, again, trying to kind of you know get into your head a little bit was so you you guys got out, you're hospitalized, surgeries, rehab, all these things. You know, where was your head immediately afterwards in terms of looking at, you know, your future? Uh, I'm sure being told never climb again or never maybe walk again. I mean, the way doctors deal with that seems a little bit radical a lot of times. But, you know, these pronouncements. But for some reason, in you know, I always do this like this conjecture psychology while I'm doing these things. But I, I almost imagine it just bouncing off your head and and being you know i mean how soon were you resolute about your future and what you were going to be capable of doing after that yeah i never i never met anyone with artificial limbs right um and so i i didn't have um a clear sense of what life would be there was one fellow that visited me and you know clearly i could see that walking was possible mm-hmm. when i got into the rehabilitation center after my limbs were amputated and i spoke to my rehabilitation doctor i sheepishly asked him uh what would i be able to do um in a physical sense and he asked me what what do you want to do and i said well i i want to drive my car i want to um, ride a bicycle, and I most certainly want to return to my chosen sport of mountain climbing. And without any thought or without hesitation, he rattled off that I'd be able to drive a car, but with hand controls, and I, I would not be able to ride a bicycle and most definitely not return to climbing. Um, I, I think I cried for 24 hours, and then I awoke, and and I and, and it came to me that it was really silly for him to say those things. Because a a he didn't know me, um, I can be a pretty um, tenacious fellow. And b he didn't even back then I realized he didn't he didn't understand the nature of technology. Technology is an invariant; it improves in time. And what's if something's not possible today? Well, it's going to be possible tomorrow, most likely. So his his claim to a seventeen year old that something would would forever be impossible was absolutely ridiculous. So thankfully I had that perspective and I didn't believe him. At what point did you then also decide that not only are you going to depend on this evolution of technology, but you're going to create it? How, how soon was that decision made sitting there? So remember there? that to, to get out of academics mm-hmm. before the Mount Washington accident, I, I signed up for vocational school. So I actually knew my way around machine shops. Oh, right on. <laughs> and I could build stuff. Um, so I started tinkering and designing, and very quickly I realized that I had, I had an opportunity, that there was this, this part of my body that was missing, and in that space I could create anything. And as a young man, I imagined a future world in which I could create elaborate structures within that space. Uh, Not only return to climbing, but perhaps uh, limbs that would enable me to run faster than uh, a person with biological limbs can achieve. Maybe limbs that don't look like limbs, limbs that have wings and I could fly. So as a young man, I, I fantasized about this future realm and began marching in that direction by, uh, by cutting and grinding and sculpting artifacts that I would wear on, on a sense. How, how soon was it, again, you were 17, how soon was it, do you remember, till you, you know, did your first attempt at climbing again with something that you had made? I was in the rehabilitation center, so I, had, um, I was fitted with artificial limbs, mm-hmm. and they were made out of plaster, believe it or not. And they told me, even if you can walk without canes or crutches, please don't do so because the limbs may fracture under your weight. So I was fitted with artificial limbs. The first weekend, they allow patients to go home during the weekend. The first weekend, they were smart. 
they did not allow me to take the limbs. <laughs> Don't give this kid the limbs. <laughs> we will never see they, him again. They left their guard down and uh, <laughs> allowed me the opportunity to take the limbs. And I went climbing. So Tony, my brother Tony, uh, and I went climbing. And the challenging part was getting to the base of the crag because walking was very painful and challenging. I think it was like an an octogenarian with two two crutches or two canes rather, you know, going down this this uh, dirt path. But once I got onto the vertical world, uh, and once I became quadrupedal, it felt really nice. It mm. felt natural, far far uh, better and more natural than than bipedal walking. And I I revisited at that time really my the passion that I have for climbing the joy you know even even though it was only five nine i was just I was just enthralled and to be out there mm-hmm. how painful was walking at that point? It was very painful right. i i I'll never forget the my first step it was within parallel bars in a rehab facility and get, i had of course very strong arms so i I kind of pressed up a you know, pushing myself up using the parallel bars and then slowly re- uh, relax my arms and put weight on my legs. And I, I think I screamed right. at how painful it was. But uh, one's, uh, the experience with artificial limbs, it's, it's a very steep learning curve, if you will. It gets, it gets better um, fast. Mm-hmm. So you start out in this very pathetic uh, point. Um, but it, it does get get better very, very, very fast. So, you know, when you when you started tinkering, as you said, and putting these things together, that was for you. Uh, it, how soon? Yeah. Like, when did you start to think about this could be uh, I have this aptitude here. I have this opportunity and I can start doing this for other people if I study and I and I and much I later. So yeah. I. I so it was painful to to walk and to stand for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. My entire family, at least the men in my family, uh, are in construction. Okay. So I was looking at that future career, and which involves, of course, construction sites, uh, being on one's feet all day long. And I realized, you know, gee, that's probably not a great idea. <laughs> And I actually tried it for a year or so with artificial limbs. And then I, I, then I considered uh, going back to school, going back to college. And the problem is I, did, I never paid attention in high school. So if you asked me what's 10% of 100 when I graduated from high school, I wouldn't be able to tell you because I had no idea what a percent was. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I grabbed books on mathematics and I started studying them on my own. Um, entered college and signed up for computer science and mathematics and realized that I just had an absolute passion uh, for the material. Okay. The passion was so intense that I, it, it, it very much replaced the passion that I had for climbing. And ultimately it replaced the identity that I had. My identity was as a climber, an extreme climber, and it switched to a, a scientist. How long? So how long after during about that? So my first patent was um, was issued when I when I graduated from uh, undergraduate school. Uh, so it was at that time period, sort of junior senior of college, that I began thinking about designing devices for other people. Mm-hmm. And going back a little bit, the, again, I had mentioned these images that I saw um, and then articles and talking about how, you know, you'd, you'd actually been able to customize these feet and, and really uh, almost, I mean, I remember, I think, reading almost like, yeah, I have better footwork now. I, I, you know, these things actually work better than my feet did by themselves. Um, what was kind of your, maybe some of your biggest or most memorable achievements afterwards in climbing before you maybe went down this other path? Do, do you remember the difference between the pre and the post in terms of your climbing level and what you accomplished with the prosthetics? I certainly climbed better after the accident than before. A, a lot of my first ascents, well-known first ascents, came after mm-hmm. the accident. 
So, you know, sticky bun power is one of 512X. Um, uh, stage fright, of course, uh, came, came after. Uh, Vandals, the first 513 in the Northeast, came after. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Thought... So before the accident, you know, I, for example, I climbed Super Crack, and I, I, I climbed it with one fall. Um, before 1980. Mm-hmm. And in those days, people would siege it and take three to four days of sieging the best climbers in the world. And I climbed it. I, I almost flashed it. And the only reason I didn't flash it is like, I had a 5-4 rack and couldn't get a hex in <laughs> in this flared crack, and I hung in there forever. Um, but after the accident, I mean, I would do laps on super crack. I would, I would go. I would climb up, down climb it, up. And never rest for like Why were you five wraps. Why were you um, so much better? More mature. Okay. And again, the accident was in, when I was 17, and I was just a, a more mature athlete. There were, there were advantages of, of the artificial limbs. There was also a, hand, a, a handful of disadvantages. Mm-hmm. Um, the limbs were, were very light in weight. That's uh, one, one advantage. But, of course, I didn't have the... The foot ankle flexibility uh, that I did when I had biological limbs. So I, I think, how, why, why did I climb better? I think for the most part, um, it was just greater discipline and training and concentration. Were you able to climb relatively pain-free? It just depended on the week. Okay. For many, many years, the, again, the approach was the dominant crux of the ascent. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the 513 ascent. It was getting to the base. Um, prostheses are better today. They're more comfortable. Um, but back then, they were, they were quite hideous in terms of their, their fit. Yeah, the interface. Correct. Right. So, yeah, let's switch gears then a little bit away from climbing. You're talking about how this passion. Was there an altruism in it in terms of the idea of I'm going to make the world better and Absolutely. I'm going to make this all work for people better? Right. So the, a rescuer, Albert Dowd, Died. He was struck by an avalanche in, in the uh, when I was seventeen on on the Mount Washington accident. Uh, so I I struggled with with guilt for a very long time, uh, and I was very very angry with myself um, for the accident for a sequence of decisions that led to the tragedy. Uh, so I, I most certainly wanted to uh, do something important with my life. Um, to, I was very motivated by the memory of Albert Dow and who, the extraordinary man he was. He was. Albert was very, very giving, very, very loving human being. Um, so out of his respect for his him, his memory, I, I marched towards this vision of how technology can, can heal people, can repair people, and even extend human capability beyond innate physiological levels. Did you, I mean, here we are now, you're, you're literally world famous in your field. Does, you know, what is, is your relationship with the accident and with uh, his death. I mean, is it like what is your relationship with it now? And, and have, do you feel like you've? Do you wake up and, and go, yeah, I've I've done I've done well. I've done well by his memory now. And was there a point where maybe you could put a little bit of that guilt behind you, or a specific point, or a specific achievement? Yeah, I think th- I think the the guilt transitioned to. Um, to more of a of a passion and a mission in life, uh, but that that process took many 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 years. How do I feel today? I mean, it's you know when one realizes the impact that one has on on the world, on others, both both good and both bad. Um, it's very humbling. Uh, to think 
that one's decisions can have such a pronounced impact on humanity. And it was just what I, what I feel now is a tremendous realization of that truth and a tremendous um, uh, feelings of responsibility uh, and a wish that my actions now and in the future will, will in the net, um, improve humanity, not degrade humanity. And these these philosophies, you know, again, we, we've got this arc of this, uh, I guess, passion for excellence or, or uh, discipline towards excellence runs through all this sort of thing. And, but you're also a, a father. Yes. A husband, father, father to two, two daughters. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And so, you know, just as a father myself and a relatively new father, where does this... Uh, translate into, into that world if you're willing to, to talk about that in terms of raising kids you're, you're, you're obviously extremely demanding on yourself you know you've said that in so many words when, when talking about love when talking about relationships you know how, how does that fit into there because you know any, somebody else maybe that those demands could translate out into, into the outer world and, and maybe poison relationships in a way so I'm just curious your philosophy about raising two people into this world uh, that you've, you've so profoundly affected yourself and, and have seen your ability to affect. How, how do you raise a couple kids into that world that you found? Yeah, so my daughters are um, Sage and, and Alex. Uh, they're extraordinary Amazons. Um, with their mother, uh, Trish, her, they've, they've done remarkable treks and mountain climbs. Uh, all over you know, Europe and North America, so they're they're tearing up the mountains uh, uh, as I did when I was younger. I try to be uh, very very respectful of my children. I try to view them as individuals, and I try to respect their their freedoms as individuals. Um, I think it's completely wrong to, for a parent to impose their ambitions on their child. So I, uh, I don't believe I do that, and I, I certainly hope that I, that I do not do that. I love being a, a father. I love being a papa. I, I think for, for most human beings, their greatest impact in the world is because they have children. And if they do a reasonable job with their children, it's by far their most pronounced influence on the world. So I think parenting is serious business, and it's something as uh, I feel adults need to really focus on and get right, because it's important. Your proudest moments or your proudest achievements in terms of your engineering, in terms of the, the artificial limbs, um, you know, what are your, you know, it's just like your climbs, what are your sort of greatest hits your greatest ascents and in your mind that you could say you know here's this thing that changed changed the way people look uh-huh. at this uh, so uh, as an MIT scientist um, we're in the business of expanding knowledge expanding doing science and expanding knowledge um, we're also in the business of actually engineering and developing technology uh, that impacts the world's the world that we live in today. So I, I've I've done both. Uh, the the latter contribution is called innovation. Innovation is very very hard. So I've invented hundreds of times, but I've only innovated twice in my life. Um, and innovation, of course, is taking an invention and making it real to the point where society can benefit from that invention. So years ago. With a large team, we we invented a computer-controlled artificial knee. Um, that's now a product called the Rio Knee, distributed globally by a company in in Iceland, Reykjavik, Reykjavik, Iceland, and it has about twenty percent market share. I, I also uh, the second innovation is a foot-ankle-powered bionic limb that I'm wearing, wearing two of them. 
that's again computer controlled that emulates muscle tendon function and enables people to walk at normal speeds and metabolic rates. That device we fit 2,000 people, uh, half have been uh, wounded U.S. soldiers. So um, an innovation takes me at least a decade to get done, and it takes 40, 50, 60 million dollars per joint, and uh, it costs some heart tissue and some gray hair. <laughs> so I'm getting better at it, <laughs> and I hope. I hope my future innovations will be more efficient. I can get them done in less than 10 years and so much money, but there you have it. All right, well, anything else you want to, uh, you want to make sure people understand about you if, if they're listening <laughs> to this for 45 minutes? <laughs> I just hope they got through it without falling asleep. No, that's, there's no way. Um, thank you so much for thank sitting you. down. I, I, I realize that, you know, all people's time is value, but... but you know, there, this is a pretty important work that you do. So to take time out of being here at MIT and talking to me is really special, and I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, thanks for listening. Thanks to Hugh Herr, rainy day in Boston at MIT, hanging out with Hugh Herr. And I want to make sure and give a shout out to a man named Jeremiah Johnson, coincidentally, who put me in touch with Hugh and I believe applied some pressure perhaps to to get Hugh to sit down for some weird little teeny podcast called The Enorma Cast. Appreciate it, Jeremiah. I got to meet Jeremiah and his wife at the American Alpine Club dinner the night before. I went over to interview Hugh and uh, Clymer, professor at MIT, so obviously no slouch himself. But thanks again, Jeremiah, and of course, love the name. All right, folks, a couple cautionary tales in the last two episodes. Please be safe out there. Do not lose body parts to climbing. More importantly, do not lose your life to climbing. So please, be extra safe out there. I don't know, that doesn't even make sense. Just be safe. Be extra safe. You can't be extra safe because that implies that you were not as safe another time. So just do it all. Make sure you know what you're doing. And I want you to climb hard. I want you to push your limits, but I also want you to take it easy and make sure you have things in hand before you leave the ground. So do your best, come home alive, and of course, check your knot. Thank you.